Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Well, I'd like to welcome our listeners uh, once again to another in our sessions of interview uh, with the experts. And I'm delighted today to have my uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Mike Cullen, who's an associate professor of medicine and a consultant in our division of cardiovascular ultrasound. And he's here today to talk about the uh, preoperative evaluation prior to non-cardiac surgery. So uh, welcome, uh, Mike. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Bell. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, let's, uh, this is obviously a very common uh, scenario and uh, question that comes up about uh, assessing patients with either known or suspected uh, uh, heart disease uh, in patients who are in need of uh, non-cardiac surgery. So maybe uh, what you could do is uh, maybe just give us a general overview of how you approach those uh, situations uh, when you're asked to, to evaluate those patients. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. This is you absolutely right. This is a this is bread and butter issue comes up all of the time in the outpatient uh, clinic. And, and really, uh, when physicians, cardiologists, other clinicians are seeing these patients, they should follow a, a stepwise approach. The guidelines are outlined five questions that um, clinicians need to ask of themselves and of the patients when patients are undergoing cardiac surgery. So first question is, is the patient, does the patient need emergent non-cardiac surgery? If the answer to that is yes, they're done. Send the patient to the their operation. The cardiac evaluation needs to take a back seat. Next question is, is the patient having an acute coronary syndrome? If the answer to that is yes, you're going to want to treat the acute coronary syndrome before to taking care of the non-cardiac surgery. Now, most of the time, particularly for these, these patients with general, which would show up in the outpatient clinic, the answer to those first two questions is gonna be no. And then you need to go through as, as the third step, your clinical and surgical risk assessment. So there's two components of that. There's clinical risk and there's surgical risk. There's a bunch of different calculators online. The uh, NSQIP uh, calculator, NISQIP calculator is probably one of the most popular um, that can that incorporates a bunch of different variables to give you a combined clinical and surgical risk. If you don't have those calculators readily available, it's helpful to have sort of a gestalt of factors that will augment both clinical and surgical risk. So in terms of clinical risk, what does the patient look like, right? What are the patient's comorbidities? Do they have coronary disease? Have they had a prior MI? Do they have current angina? Do they have heart failure? Okay, do they have LV dysfunction? What's their creatinine? What's their renal function? If it's over two, that carries an elevated risk. Have they had a prior stroke or TIA? Do they have diabetes? And if they have diabetes, do they need insulin? Those are really the five, and those would go back to the RCRI criteria 20, 30 years ago. They've been around a long time, but they still hold a lot of purchase, still take a prominent role in the guidelines. So clinical risk, patient has coronary disease, heart failure, creatinine over two, prior stroke or TIA, diabetes requiring insulin, two or more of those factors, patient's gonna be higher risk. In terms of surgical risk, the big categories to think about are major vascular operations, thoracic operations, and solid organ transplants. Studies have shown that those operations generally carry a 5% or greater risk of cardiac complications. So if you have a high-risk patient undergoing a high-risk surgery, that is going to elevate your index of suspicion 
for the need for potential cardiac testing, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Now, if you got a low-risk patient, no significant risk factors, low-risk operation, less than 1%, you feel that their combined clinical risk is less than 1%, you're done. The patient can go to their non-cardiac surgery without the need for further testing. Okay? But if that combined clinical and surgical risk is greater than 1%, then you need to go to the fourth step in the algorithm. And the fourth step is assessing the patient's functional capacity. Okay? Ask a few key questions. Okay? Can the patient walk two flights of stairs? Can they walk four blocks on level ground? Can they do yard work like raking leaves or can they push a lawnmower? Okay, if they can do those activities, they can usually get to more than four mets. Then they can probably go to their non-cardiac surgery without the need for any further testing. But if they really can't do those activities without significant limitation, their functional capacity is probably less than four mets, probably pretty limited. And if they're in that limited category, then you ask your fifth question, okay? If I do additional testing, is it going to impact decision-making, okay? Is it going to impact the need for this non-cardiac surgery? Is it going to impact the timing of this non-cardiac surgery? Is it going to impact medications I give around the time of this non-cardiac surgery, okay? And if you start to answer yes to those questions, that's when you get into the, maybe this patient needs a stress test scenario. Mike, you know, I think you've really uh, summarized it very nicely. And, and I think we both uh, acknowledge that the guidelines have become uh, less and less, um, maybe for want of a better word, aggressive in terms of, you know, working these patients up. And I think you've nicely highlighted that, yes, in those emergency situations, all, all bets are off. I mean, you, you just need to take care of the, the current problem. Absolutely. When it comes to assessing your high risk, high risk sorry, high surgical risk, versus you know, high clinical risk. What about the situation when you have a high risk procedure, but the patient uh, is completely asymptomatic from a cardiac standpoint? Do you still need to go looking for disease in those patients or not? I, I would say that if the patient is, even if they're undergoing high risk surgery, if they have a very good functional capacity, if they're asymptomatic, if they're active, a lot of testing probably isn't going to be necessary. Now, I know that oftentimes patients will undergo pre-transplant ischemic assessments. We see these all the time. Um, some of that's driven by the fact that even if the patient is uh, has a good functional capacity, you know, these renal transplant patients, kidney disease just is going to in increase their risk of cardiovascular disease. So even if the patient's functional status is, is good, a lot of their the risk could be driven by the underlying disease sure. that's driving the need for the non-cardiac sure. surgery. There's obviously a lot of complexity in, in what you've just uh, nicely summarized. So, so let's move on then. Uh, and let's assume that you've decided that you do need to do some additional testing. What, yeah. what would that be? I mean, just, just briefly, well, uh, what type right. of test would you be exactly. uh, recommending? And, and um, I just want to emphasize, though, before um, diving too deep into this, that it's important um, to keep two things in mind. Number one, nothing should be done routinely. We don't want to do tests just because the patient is having a non-cardiac surgery. Number two, if the patient wouldn't otherwise need the test, you probably don't need to do it. But if you're looking at the patient saying, I need a x-ray or I need a treadmill test or I need a stress test independent of the non-cardiac surgery, then you want to get it. Okay. There's a really good point you just yes. made there, Mike. Yes, Everyone exactly. should pay great attention to that. Exactly. If you need the test independent of the non-cardiac surgery, get the test and, and the inverse applies as well. So nothing should be done routinely. 
but then the question comes up about the need for stress testing, right? Who should get stress tests? And the American guidelines um, will give a class 2A recommendation to pharmacological stress testing, typically with a dibutamine stress echocardiogram or a regadenazone um, myocardial perfusion study in patients with elevated risk with poor functional capacity if it's going to change management. Okay, the European guidelines give a little bit stronger recommendation. I think it's a little bit more clear. It's a little bit easier to remember. So they say if the patient has high, if it's a high risk patient undergoing a high risk operation with a poor or unknown functional capacity, so less than four minutes, it's reasonable to do a pharmacological stress test if it's going to change management. And again, when I talk about if it's going to change management, we're talking about timing of surgery, need for surgery, medications around the time of the operation. If the stress test isn't going to change any of those things, then you don't need it, even if the patient meets all of the other criteria. So practically, I like to take the approach of the European guidelines, high-risk patient, high-risk surgery, poor or unknown functional capacity if it's going to change management. Sure. And, and presumably, this is not a binary uh, assessment. I mean, you know, normal versus abnormal. I mean, you're probably looking for right. seriously abnormal, right. worrisome findings before you're going to recommend, you know, an angiogram or some you know, additional exactly. treatment. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the we and then the question always comes up, right, what do you do with the stress test if it's abnormal? right? You want to treat the abnormal stress test in the preoperative setting like you would any other abnormal stress right. test. So asymptomatic, low-risk stress tests probably don't need to rush off to the cath. High-risk findings on stress tests, that's when we want to go for an invasive evaluation. Uh, and what's the strength of the data that uh, identifying such patients, and let's say we're talking about coronary artery disease, that they now appear to be high risk for this uh, surgery. Maybe they don't have uh, much in the way of symptoms, but their functional capacity isn't great. What What's the strength of the data in terms of improving their outcome with a revascularization strategy, whether it's stents or, or bypass surgery? So so the, the strength is, is not there. So this goes back uh, several years, uh, 10 or 15 years ago to COVID study said that there's no benefit and potentially even some harm from revascularization just to get the patient through the non-cardiac surgery. Okay. So you, you don't do it. Um, what you're doing for, what you're looking for is um, severe left main three-vessel coronary disease, proximal LAD disease, situations where you can revascularize the patient and you can know that you can improve their long-term outcomes by revascularizing them. So you don't, especially if the asymptomatic patient, that 80% yeah. the distal LED, you don't open that up just to get the patient through the non surgery. So hopefully good clinical judgment and very selected uh, patients. Uh, getting back to the point you made earlier, you know, there may be an indication to treat those patients regardless of whether they're having non-cardiac surgery or not. Okay. Let's move on to the next um, question here, though, uh, in terms of, uh, I would maybe just ask this in two parts. So a patient that you've identified or has known coronary disease or other heart disease, valvular, uh, cardiomyopathy, whatever. Are there additional medications that we should be thinking about starting these patients on or not? And are there any medications that some of these patients may already be on that we should think about stopping prior to surgery? Right. So um, beta blockers always get a lot of press in this space. And if you go back 20, 30 years, some of the early data on, very, on beta blockers was very promising and showed a lot of benefit to putting patients undergoing high risk, putting high risk patients on, on beta blockers before their operation. And then we have the POISE trial, which came around in 2008. 
And, and the poise trial changed a lot of the thinking in this space. It, it actually demonstrated harm to high dose oral beta blockers. They were giving metoprolol extended release 100 milligrams on the two to four hours before non-cardiac surgery, actually increased uh, rates of symptomatic hypertension and increased overall mortality. So if the patient, if, if the patient would otherwise have an indication for a beta blocker, and you need to start a beta blocker, you don't do it right before the operation. You want to give several days, if not even a week or two, to assess the patient's ability to tolerate that beta blocker, ensure that they can, they're not going to get symptomatically hypotensive before you send them off to the non-cardiac surgery. Now, if they're already on a beta blocker, you certainly want to continue that throughout the perioperative period, but you don't want to start beta blockers, particularly high dose, within a few days of sending the patient to the operating room. But there would be medications such as you know, statins in some of these Absolutely, patients. There would, yeah. there would be no indication for stopping those and no harm in starting them uh, in that setting. Exactly. So actually, guidelines will say class one indication, patients undergoing major vascular surgery should be on a statin. A lot of those patients are going to meet um, guideline recommendations for statins for any way for secondary prevention. The other one that frequently comes up is ACEs or ARBs. Yeah. So if there's a risk for uh, perioperative or intraoperative hypotension, reasonable to hold the ACE or the ARB the day before the operation, just as long as you remember to resume it as soon as it's safely tolerable afterwards. Yeah, that's a that's a key point and something that we take for granted. But uh, I think we've all seen patients uh, that those medications have fallen off their list, and and that's a shame when there's a real indication for those. Well, Mike, you know, I I think you know, we've we've covered quite a lot in this uh, short amount of time, and and as as I hear you and our listeners hear you, it's uh, it seems as though that the recommendations you know, from the guidelines seem very reasonable. They have been pared down a lot, and I think you've you know summarized that you're really looking for those high risk individuals. You want to be very selective. It's not a it's not an invitation to go testing everyone, and we, we certainly don't want to be over-testing uh, because that can perhaps potentially lead to, to more harm. Um, and I, I think things may be, may be a little simpler than they were you know, many years ago. Do, do you have anything else you'd like to add at this point no, before I, we I'd close? I'd just like to reiterate, uh, if, I, if I can leave our listeners with one point, it's that you know when you look at these patients in the preoperative setting and you get these, these patients referred for a PAMI or a pre-anesthetic medical exam, oftentimes it's easiest just to take the operation out of the picture, look at the patient in front of you and say, what tests do I need in this patient? What's this patient's overall cardiovascular risk? What do I need to do for this patient independent of their non-cardiac surgery? Make those decisions and then you factor in the non-cardiac surgery after that and then decide on, on timing and medications and things like that. It's just simpler if you make the decisions independent of the non-cardiac surgery and then go from there. All right. Well, that's a nice uh, summary to end on, Mike. So again, I'd like to thank you for your uh, time uh, spent with us uh, today and for our listeners uh, for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic.